El Fanboy, episode 29. Twenty seventeen has been a very strange year so far. In the last nine months, we've been treated to several fantastic films. To name a few, Get Out, Logan, Wonder Woman, Baby Driver, War for the Planet of the Apes, and several more. Films that garnered stellar reviews, brought something new and different to the table, and put their own unique spins on well-known genres. Yes, for a time it felt like there was a new must-see movie in theaters every week or two, and it was hard to keep up for those of us with busy lives. Then, suddenly, things went off a cliff. For the last few weeks, there hasn't been much to write home about. The last summer hits were Annabelle Creation and The Hitman's Bodyguard, but both were only marginal wins for their respective studios and for fans. The result was an August that helped turn this summer into a total bummer at the box office. This is one of the worst summers in recent memory, despite the volume of great movies that were released because, aside from the fact that all of the major studios seemingly went on vacation last month, mixed in with some of those great films were abysmal failures. Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets and The Dark Tower bombed. Cars 3, Pirates 5, and Transformers 5 all turned in the lowest halls of their respective franchises. If you're a Hollywood bean counter, this was a downer of a summer. If you're a fan, you've been incredibly spoiled all year. With It, Justice League, Thor Ragnarok, Kingsman 2, Murder on the Orient Express, Mother, American Maid, Blade Runner 2049, Suburbicon, Coco, The Shape of Water, and Star Wars The Last Jedi all still on the way, film buffs will look back on 2017 as a landmark year. With so many great movies, who are the biggest winners so far? Which films reach the rarefied air of being loved by fans, adored by critics, all while garnering sizable profits for their studios? Today's big story lies in the answer to that question. 2017's biggest winners so far are women and people of color. At a time when they've been feeling marginalized and under attack, films like Get Out, Wonder Woman, and Girls Trip have quietly become the biggest success stories of the year. Get Out written and directed by African-American filmmaker Jordan Peele, has been deemed the most profitable film of 2017. With a budget of only $4.5 million and a worldwide haul of $252 million, Get Out gave production company Bloomhouse a 630% return on investment, all while winning over critics and fans alike with stellar scores across the board. Wonder Woman this week became the fifth highest grossing superhero film of all time. With a budget of only $149 million, low when compared to what's spent on superhero cinema these days, the Patty Jenkins-directed DC epic has raked in an extraordinary $813 million worldwide. And that's only so far. Girls Trip became a sleeper hit the moment it premiered on July 21st to minimal promotional hype. It cost $19 million to make and opened to $31.2 million, turning heads everywhere. Girls Trip would go on to become the only comedy breakout of the year, succeeding where Baywatch, The House, Snatched, and Rough Night all failed. The film currently stands at 126.5 million and counting. Domestically, it even edged out Edgar Wright's Baby Driver, despite that film having a major marketing push leading up to its release. What makes these victories even sweeter is that none of these films were expected to perform this well. 
Get Out was a low-budget horror film with a risky social injustice allegory at its core, led by a rookie director. Wonder Woman was set to be DC's first release since 2016 when both Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad received harsh reviews and had a divisive impact on the fan base. And it centered on a female hero, a concept which sadly made industry analysts underestimate it from the project's inception. Girls Trip didn't have much of a marketing push and thematically it seemed similar to Rough Night which had Avengers star Scarlett Johansson at its center and bombed hard in June. There was little reason to think that Girls Trip would fare much better, so its success caught many by surprise. Beyond that, it even managed to do something that previous African-American-led success stories from the likes of Tyler Perry could do. It was showered with praise by critics and fans alike, creating the kind of word of mouth most small films can only dream of. So as we look back on the year thus far, with eight months of cinematic triumphs behind us, a summer season coming to its close, and four months of great films on the horizon, let's tip our hats to 2017's biggest winners, women and people of color. On this subject, I'm about to do a bit of a pivot. In the past, I've been a little uh, dismissive about the importance of representation when it comes to Latinos in the arts. See, I am a Latino in the arts, and my family has a rich heritage, both in the local theater scene here in New York and in Hollywood with my aunt, the late Elizabeth Pena, making waves and breaking new ground for Latino actors in the 80s and 90s. Despite all that, I've always felt like things were fine. I'm not someone who has felt slighted by how few Latinos I see on TV or in film. I'm someone who feels the pride of my special heritage whenever one of us wins a prestigious award or quietly scores a huge role in a major film, but who doesn't exactly feel there's an injustice being committed when that doesn't happen. But this week, I was moved. I was moved by someone I've admired since I was a little kid, John Leguizamo. I've always felt a closeness to the man. His 1991 film Mambo Mouth was quite an event for me when it came out. It meant something to me that he was also born and raised in Queens and that he was a half Puerto Rican, just like me. In 1995, I studied acting at New York's HB studio and one of my classmates was Leguizamo's little sister. It just always felt like he and I traveled in similar circles. There was really only one degree of separation. And so he became not only a role model, but a member of the tribe, so to speak. Someone from our little New York Latino arts clique that was making big moves in Hollywood. I'd also always make it a point to see his one-man Broadway shows like Freak and Sexaholics whenever he was in town doing one. He and my aunt also would go on to do a few films together, and she'd pass on funny stories about their time together on set. And it's because of this that an essay he penned last week has struck a chord within me. If you haven't read it yet, I'll include a link to it in the description of this episode. In it, Leguizamo makes a potent case that enough is enough, that the complacency and neutrality that people like me have expressed is now hurting our community. He points out that we're now the second biggest population in the U.S. next to whites, and that it really is baffling that we only make up 6% of the speaking roles seen in films and television. Even as Hispanic directors continuously win Best Director and Best Cinematographer at the Academy Awards year after year, even after Latino artists release songs that top the charts for months and months, and our actors break barriers by nabbing major roles in Star Wars and Marvel movies, it's still so hard to have our presence felt in pop culture. It does beg the question, what gives? So look, I'm not going to get all social justice warrior on you here. I'm not going to get up on a, onto a soapbox or anything. But from now on, moving forward, I plan on championing my fellow Latinos in the arts and making sure that they feel the love while I make sure to contribute to a beautiful noise. 
a noise punctuated by congas, colorful accents, and the kind of unmistakable energy only our people can provide. Just like Benicio del Toro said at the Hispanic Organization of Latin Actors Gala that I spoke at two years ago while inaugurating the first-ever Elizabeth Pena Breakthrough Artist Award, he spoke to a room filled with Latino artists when he reiterated some advice he'd been given early on. It's better to be the head of a rat than the tail of a lion. And he closed by quoting Cesar Chavez in saying, Si se puede, think big. It's time for me to think bigger. But okay, let's get to the week's news. Just as tradition dictates, we're going to start off this week's look at the news with the box office. This past weekend was one of the worst Labor Day weekends in quite a while. As I touched on a few minutes ago, this summer has been uh, has been a downer in the in the record books, especially these last few weeks. But let's let's see who won this uh, ugly non-slugfest at the box office. Uh, coming in at number one was the Hitman's Bodyguard, which has been uh, at the number one spot now for three weeks straight. It uh, pulled in 10.5 million. In second place, we had Annabelle Creation pulling in $7.5 million, which, by the way, means it is now officially surpassing its predecessor. Pretty darn impressive when you think about it, because Annabelle was just a spinoff of The Conjuring, and this is a sequel to a spinoff of The Conjuring. And, you know, at some point you would think that the law of diminishing returns would start to set in, but no, Annabelle Creation at this point has made $258 million worldwide. That's pretty gosh darn good. And at this point, the previous Annabelle hadn't touched that yet. The previous Annabelle, after 25 days, was at $79.7 million. So this is already a full $11 million more. So that's, uh, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at. Annabelle Creation is doing very nicely for itself. Uh, then there's Wind River which pulled in $6.2 million and is in third place after uh, being in fourth place last week, so it moved up. In fourth place, you had Leap, the animated film from, the we- from Weinstein Co., which I actually saw last week because, well, you know, my wife's a dancer, my daughter wants to be a dancer, and it's about ballerinas, so of course I had to go, despite the fact that it's got terrible reviews, and it was all right. But um, but financially, you know, it made four point eight million. Um, let's see, where does that put it? You know, right now we don't have any figures on what it costs to make, but the worldwide haul is ninety six million. Uh, to me, a lot of the animation seemed a little on the cheap side. This didn't seem to be like a top tier animated feature. So I'm guessing it wasn't that expensive to make, which you know works well in its favor. Uh, but yeah, so that's that. Then in fifth place, we had Logan Lucky by Mr. Steven Soderbergh, uh, who is a director you guys know. I love a great deal. I had just recommended Out of Sight to you guys a couple weeks ago. That's some early Soderbergh goodness. Uh, I mean, he'd been he'd already been around for a bit, but that was prior to him becoming a household name with like the Oceans series and whatnot. But Logan Lucky is in fifth place, the same place it was last week, with 4.5 million bucks. Um, and yeah, the comparison that I, you know, I think is most apt for Logan Lucky would have been Baby Driver because they're both sort of that like quirky indie heist movie with a surprising cast and just sort of a very sort of original energy to it. And, you know, I feel like a lot of people were hoping that it would do Baby Driver numbers and it's really not. Um, right now it stands at 25.8 million bucks. Uh, at this point, you know, th- that's three weeks in, right? Before I talk out of my ass, hang on a second. Let me just make sure what I'm, what I'm telling you here. Yeah. Logan Lucky is three weeks in and it's at 25, three weeks in, uh, baby driver had already made $73 million. So baby driver, this thing is not. So anyone holding out hope that Logan Lucky would become another, 
uh, surprise smash like Baby Driver. Uh, that, that just ain't going to happen. Uh, notables moving forward, you know, Dunkirk is still hanging in there in sixth place, followed by Spider-Man Homecoming, which has been out for nine weeks and still pulled in 3.6 mil. Uh, Girls Trip rounded out the top 10 with 2.3 million. Um, and Wonder Woman, like I said earlier, breaking records, uh, now the fifth highest grossing superhero film of all time domestically. Uh, she landed in 12th place w- with a haul of 1.9 million. That's actually a bit of a rebound. Last week she was at 15. This week she's at 12. That, uh, that's a testament to the staying power of Wonder Woman. Uh, so that is sort of the box office breakdown for this week. Not a lot of analysis. There wasn't really too much to discuss this week in terms of box office, unfortunately. That will change next week when it comes out, because right now it's amazing. Since so many people haven't been going to the movies in the last month, people are like backed up and they are ready to splooge all over it. Uh, everyone is ready to go to the movies. They've just been waiting for an excuse to get to the movies and it looks like it is going to give them that opportunity. So that that's going to be the big box office story next week. So let's save that for next week. Um, so the top stories that I'd like to discuss today. Ryan Johnson has made some interesting comments about The Last Jedi that I think should give us Star Wars fans some stuff to think about. And it's just interesting to hear you know his insight since remember he's not just the director of episode eight he's also the writer so he has special you know creative uh, you know weight when it comes to telling this story he said writing Kylo Ren is just so much fun Star Wars boils down to the transition from adolescence into adulthood. That's the heart of these films, and Rey is most obviously the one that hangs on, but it's also Kylo. In the originals, you project entirely onto Luke, while Vader is the scary other. He's the Minotaur. The fascinating thing about Kylo and Rey is that they're two sides of something. We can all relate to Kylo, to that anger of being in the turmoil of adolescence and figuring out who he's going to be as a man, dealing with anger and wanting to separate from his family. He's not Vader. At least he's not Vader yet. And that's something I really wanted to get into. So that quote's very interesting for me because it's true. You know, while everyone wanted to discuss uh, the similarities between The Force Awakens and A New Hope... um, one area where I always said it stood head and shoulders apart or, or above in certain respects what had come before it and, and kind of makes it hard to compare this to what we've seen in the original trilogy is the characters themselves, the trajectories they're on. You've got some fascinating characters set up now for this new trilogy that, and their dynamics and the way they bounce off of each other is very different than what we've seen before. You know, Johnson's absolutely right. In the beginning, Luke was the absolute good guy. Vader was the absolute bad guy. And, you know, obviously that dynamic got more and more complex as the original trilogy wore on. But, you know, that's, that was their dynamic. In this one, it really is kind of like a dual story. You have Rey and Kylo, both basically two sides of the same coin. And trying to figure out, you know, one's going to go in one direction, one's going to go in another, but can they, can one be pulled towards the light? Can one be pulled towards the dark? You know, that sort of tug of war, that give and take is very interesting. And, you know, to me, when I, when I think about the fact that I still think there's a chance Kylo will, re, will be redeemed, um, it's interesting for, on my end to hear Johnson say that, you know, he's not Vader. You know, Vader, at a certain point, had basically shut off his emotions. As, as we know, after, at the end of Revenge of the Sith, he basically became a monster. You know, up until Empire Strikes Back, when, uh, you know, he, he had the confrontation with Luke and we started seeing maybe a pull towards the light on his end, we know that he had spent a few decades as just a monster, a brute, you know, the Emperor's enforcer. He had shut down anything that was left of his humanity to become this ominous presence that was there to do the Emperor's bidding. Kylo ain't there. You know, Kylo is still just as young and twisted as Rey is right now, trying to figure out his place in the universe, his place in the galaxy. And in that way, his path can go, you know, in a few different directions. 
so to me, that you know, that, that's just going to be a very interesting to see how that develops. You know, it's almost like if uh, if somehow Luke and the Anakin that we knew from the the prequels were running side by side. Obviously, that couldn't happen because their father and son of the timelines wouldn't link up. But to compare it to that, you know, Kylo is very much in the same place that Anakin was during the prequel trilogy, and Rey is in the place where Luke was in the original trilogy. But right now, they're both playing against each other in the same timeline, and it's going to be interesting to see where the writers take them and how they sort of, you know, move the needle in different directions. Uh, so I, I've always found Kylo to be a very fascinating character. Um, I think Adam Driver does a lot of really good stuff with him too. So I, you know, just reading that got me pretty hyped. Um, then there was more to Johnson's remarks. He also said, we got the whole story. By the way, this is with regard to Snoke. You know, people are wondering if we're going to find out a lot about Snoke or how they're going to handle it. And I think Johnson's remarks here are poetic. <laughs> they're exactly what I wanted to hear. Um, he says, we got the whole story of Palpatine's rise to power in the prequels. But in the original films, he's exactly what he needs to be, which is just the Emperor. He's a dark force, the scary thing behind the thing. That was entirely how I approached Snoke. I wasn't interested in explaining where he came from or telling his story, except where it serves this story. One of the things I love about that is it like indirectly puts the prequels in its place. You know, that was one of the issues that I had with the prequels, not even about the quality of the films. I'm not about to go off on the prequels and, 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 and pile on on that bandwagon. No, no, no. I'm about to talk about the fact that from a storytelling standpoint, they overexplained things. They, they robbed certain things of their mystique. You know, they robbed Darth Vader of what made him cool and mysterious in the original trilogy. They over-explained who the Emperor was in showing his arc as he went from being, you know, a member of the Senate to, you know, becoming the Emperor you know, that we know him to be. You know, it looks like Johnson also kind of felt that way too, that he didn't didn't he didn't need to know all this extra backstory he liked that sometimes the bad guy could just be the bad guy the dark force without you having to overanalyze and over explain why he is the way he is so hearing him say that he wasn't interested in explaining where he came from or telling his history except where it serves the story that was just music to my ears. And, and once again, it gives me an awful lot to be optimistic about when it comes to Star Wars The Last Jedi. So cannot freaking wait for December to see that. Um, then there was some, some interesting updates about, about Hellboy. You know, we, the, the reboot's been on a lot of people's minds lately. Uh, Kelvin's had some pretty good scoopage on it lately. And now some the guys over at Omega Underground um, and Entertainment World um, have some interesting information on that. I believe the scoop comes from Omega Underground. But I, I want to be sure to give them uh, credit if need be. Um, bu -bu 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 yep, this is an Omega Underground scoop. Okay. So, sorry if, if that was, you know, boring for you to have to wait those extra seconds. I just wanted to make sure to give credit where it was due. Uh, they're good guys, uh, Caleb and Christopher. Anyway, um, they came up with the fact that it looks like we've now got a synopsis and somewhat of a shooting schedule. Uh, according to them, the, the, the film is going to start filming in mid-September. So, we're pretty much almost there in Bulgaria and the United Kingdom. And they also came up with, you know, they've also somehow uncovered the basic, you know, uh, skeleton of the plot, which is the film is about Hellboy going to England where he must defeat, I don't know how the hell pr to pronounce this, Nimui, N Nimui, Nimue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is the worst reading I've ever done. Where he must defeat Nimue, Merlin's consort of the Blood Queen. And oh, okay. God, I'm the worst person in the world. 
Okay. The film is about Hellboy going to England where he must defeat Nimue, Merlin's consort, and the Blood Queen. But their battle will bring about the end of the world, a fate he desperately tries to turn away. So that, according to Omega Underground, is what uh, the Hellboy reboot starring David Harbour from Stranger Things is going to be about. Um, I mean, that sounds pretty interesting. Uh, I've never read any of the Hellboy books. My only real exposure to the character were the two Guillermo del Toro movies. But, you know, I'm definitely interested in this. I'm definitely interested in the fact that it's going to be a, like a darker sort of R-rated film and that it looks like they're going to try to adhere even closer to the books. Um, I love Harbor on Stranger Things and I, I kind of look forward to seeing him bring his sort of like quiet intensity uh, to, to Hellboy. So, you know, I mean, listen, am I sad that Ron Perlman shall not be returning? Yes, absolutely. I would have loved to see a proper capper to their trilogy, and I think they earned it. But, you know, all things considered, this sounds like it's a pretty exciting way to go. Um, while we're discussing Hellboy, you know, last week there was a lot of big news because Ed Screen, um stepped down from playing Major Ben Damio in this reboot because, you know, he discovered that the character is supposed to be of Asian descent or at least like mixed race. And there was a big sort of backlash about all that. And it made him actually step down, which is like a big deal. You know, that's that that's sort of an unprecedented thing to do. You know, Scarlett Johansson didn't back down when Ghost in the Shell, you know, was announced. Um, you know, no one else has ever really done this. But he he released a statement and he gave up the job because he wanted to do what was right. And Variety has a pretty interesting piece I recommend you guys all read, written by Ricardo Lopez, film reporter for Variety, uh, just basically stating that, you know, this could be a game changer. This could be a moment where the things pivot now. Ren Hanami, chairwoman of SAG-AFTRA's Asian Pacific American Media Committee, said she's hopeful that Screen's action will encourage other actors to follow his lead. Um... Yeah, she said, we need to keep the dialogue going. It's going to have to be several Ed Screens and public pressure and ticket sales that are really low for the movies that don't consider diversity. Um, then we need to really highlight the success of things like Fast and the Furious and movies that have diverse and inclusive casts. Uh, there's also a quote from Cindy Chu from the CBS series Hawaii Five O. You know, uh, she said... You know, what Ed has done will echo through the industry. He set a new level of integrity for white actors to do their part in making sure whitewashing is discontinued. Um, by the way, I, I miscredited her. She's not from MacGyver. She's from, uh, she's not from Hawaii Five-O. She's from MacGyver. Um, so, yeah, so it's just, it's interesting. You know, it, this could be a pivotal moment, guys. For, for those of you who really care about this issue, um... This really could be a turning point. So it's going to be interesting to see if Ed Screen really sort of makes waves here and how this Hellboy reboot could suddenly be on the vanguard of a movement that finally puts this whitewashing business behind us. Um, so I'm going to be keeping a very close eye on that. Just a quick little thing, too. You know, there was a new Justice League logo released that now has the little DC logo at the top. This isn't really like a, a big story. I just kind of like how it looks. I wanted to mention it. If you guys look up the new Justice League movie logo, I kind of like how simple it is. It's just that nice black and white DC in a circle above the already, you know, uh, pre-known Justice League logo. I just kind of like it. It's like it's simple. It's very clean. Whoever's working on their marketing lately is doing very nice. Like I, I love the... Uh, the, the the new poster that has the tagline that includes all the characters' logos. I just, you know, the, I, I like what they're doing. It embraces the comic book heritage. It's, it, it sort of stands out. It gives them their own sort of distinctive look. And I just, I love the simplicity of the new DC logo. I know the logo has changed a lot in the last, like, 10 years. They've gone from the classic one to a new one to a new new one to an even newer new one. I hope they settle on this current iteration of the DC logo because I think it's pretty sexy and pretty sleek. Um, there's also a new photo making the rounds 
of uh, John Bernthal from the Punisher series, the Marvel Netflix Punisher series, where uh, we see what looks like it's going to be a flashback sequence. We see him in his army fatigues holding a gun. Looks like he's in the middle of a war zone. So it looks like in this series, we're going to get to learn a little bit more about Frank Castle. So bring that on. Like I've been saying for a while, out of all the Marvel you know, series on Netflix that everyone's so high on, for me, it's all about Daredevil and it's all about Punisher. I still have yet to start The Defenders. I'm not certain I will be starting it anytime soon. I, I just, I don't know. I, I, for some reason, I, I've lost interest. Um, you know, I fell off during Luke Cage. I never finished Iron Fist. But Punisher, I am, uh, my body is ready. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, if you haven't sh- checked that out, it's, you know, it's a, it's a scan from Empire Magazine. <clears throat> that shows him in his army fatigues. We're going to get to find out a little bit about what makes Miss, Mr. Frank Castle tick. So bring that on. Um, there's also a new trailer for Insidious, The Last Key. You know, it's interesting. Um, Insidious 1, my wife and I were so into for about two-thirds of it. Remember, we were in theaters, and, you know, it was one of those, like, rare instances we get to go to the movies. We don't really go to the movies much ever since, you know, like, together, uh, ever since the kids entered the fray. And this was one of those nights where, like, the, the stars aligned. We got the babysitter. Let's go see Insidious. And we were sitting there. We kind of kept looking at each other, like, this is great. It was really scary. We were loving the characters. We were loving the, the very sort of distinct approach towards horror that Insidious had. Um, because at the time, it had become very sort of common for, for, for the horror to be sort of more on the subtle side, more like quick little jump scares and everything's in the shadows. And, you know, it's the, 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 the fearful stuff is mainly in your mind. Uh, and then when it does show up, it's very sort of big and bloody and grotesque and whatever. Um, Insidious kind of had its own funky thing going where like the horror was very in your face. The scary thing wasn't obscured. The scary thing was in the room with you walking right at you, ratcheting up the tension in daylight doing, you know, it was just it, it, that movie. We, I, I remember just feeling like, wow, this is cool. This feels different. This feels legitimately scary. And I can't fucking breathe because some of these scenes are so like tense. The monsters, the things that they're dealing with are so just in your face. It's, you know, it just, it felt different. It felt fresh. Um, and then it just got really silly. Uh, I remember like the last half hour, like all of a sudden it was like, it jumped the shark. I remember with with this like Freddy Krueger looking guy playing a horn, uh, an organ. And it just, I I just remember like it got tremendously silly once they started venturing more into that, that underworld, into that like nightmare world, demon realm. That is such a part of of that movie's, uh, that series mythology. So that's why I haven't seen any of the other Insidious films since then. I believe there have been two others, and I've just sort of uh, let them go by. With that said, this trailer looks pretty fucking awesome. So Insidious now has a, you know, the, the, the latest Insidious now has a, a new title. Uh, it'll be coming out on January 5th, so we've still got a few months ahead of us. But it is called Insidious The Last Key. And if you have not yet seen the trailer and you are a horror buff, I would definitely strongly recommend you check out the trailer for Insidious The Last Key. That shit looks scary. It looks good. And I still just, for me, there's a novelty in the fact that the lead actress, like what I know her from makes her being, you know, her her name is Lynn Shay. Um, Seeing her in this, like, (laughs) I still can't not think of her as the gross landlord from Kingpin. I don't know if you guys saw Kingpin, the Ferrelli Brothers comedy, the bowling comedy starring Woody Harrelson and uh, Randy Quaid. But if you haven't, by the way, you totally should. Kingpin's fucking hilarious. But yeah, whenever I see Lynn Shay, I just picture her doing that thing with with the fingers on the side of her mouth and the tongue. You guys know the thing. I'm not going to go into what she's referring to if you haven't yet seen the movie. But whenever I see her, I'm just like, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, 
but anyway, aside from that little, my own little psychological distraction, uh, the trailer looks very, very good. So uh, I may actually check out Insidious. Hopefully the fact that I missed out on two and three doesn't uh, hinder my inter- my entertainment of it. Or maybe I will, you know, bite the bullet and, and force myself to see two and three so that I know what the hell four is about, just based on how good that trailer looked. Um, another bit of interesting news for you comes in the form of James Bond. Uh, there's an interesting rumor going on that I want to I wanna call to your attention and then dissect a little bit for you. So there's a rumor making the rounds from page six, uh, which is primarily like a gossip, uh, you know, paper. You know, it's it's uh, it started as like a gossip column in the in the New York Post, and has since sort of expanded a bit. So you know, they're fairly reputable. They're well known. They're not just some Joe schmo. Uh, they have a rumor that basically says that Bond twenty five is going to be like taken, the Liam Neeson series, with Bond at the center. With the idea being that the story picks up with Bond basically having retired, because as we know, at the end of Spectre, he kind of rode off into the sunset with his love interest, uh, uh, Madeline Swan, played by Leah Sado. And uh, this one's apparently going to pick up with them, you know, enjoying retirement, uh, but obviously not for all that long, because something's going to happen. She's either going to be. Uh, kidnapped or killed. The rumor here is that she actually gets killed, uh, which sounds like, you know, I don't know. He already had a love interest a few movies ago who died at the hands of a villain. So to me, that feels a little bit like a retread. But either way, something happens to his wife. It sounds like she gets killed, and that forces Bond back into action to try to track down, you know, what, what happened to his wife. Now... A couple obvious things jump out at me here. Uh, we know Blofeld was not killed, Inspector. Blofeld was arrested. And we know that Blofeld is one of Bond's most iconic villains, and you got Christoph Waltz playing the man. So I wonder if you know, the, where they're going with this is that Waltz, you know, Blofeld is going to either have pulled the strings from prison to have her killed as revenge for, for what Bond did to him, or if he's going to break out, that sort of deal. I don't know. But that's the first thing that jumps out at me, that Blofeld is behind this, which is pretty cool because now it means that maybe we'll get to see Christoph Waltz do something a little better than he did last time around. It wasn't his fault. He's a great actor. But to me, Spectre was a very underwhelming movie. Uh, maybe this time around, Blofeld will be far more interesting and Christoph Waltz will have a role that he could really sink his teeth into. Um so that is exciting to me, the idea of that and, and getting to see Craig's bond with Waltz's Blofeld go mano a mano again, perhaps in a better movie. But also, you know, I, I was hit with two different emotions reading this, this rumor. On the one hand, some of it feels like a retread. Like, A, we've already seen a million movies like Taken. So do we really need to see another, like, you killed my wife or what a type movie, and now I'm going to kill you. Uh, do we really need that? You know, isn't Bond what, what sets it apart, sort of the fact that it's an espionage tale and we're more into, like, the spy work and the gadgets and the, the covert missions, not just a straight-up revenge tale? So, you know, there was that that sort of... Mm. Then there was, like I said earlier, the fact that it looks like the wife gets killed where I'm like, didn't we just do this? You know, didn't his, his love interest played by Eva Green just get killed at the end of Casino Royale? And we, we got to witness Quantum of Solace where, you know, with a sulking, brooding Craig who's, who's lamenting the death of his loved one. Like, are we just going to get more of that now? Um, so, you know, so that, that, that's, that's how I feel on the negative side. On the positive side, I'm wondering if maybe this will be the final stepping stone towards bringing Bond back to the light in terms of rather than being the brooding sort of anti-hero he's been throughout the Craig series, this perhaps sets up a Bond that's going to be more of the charming sort of, uh, you know, ladies' man, Lothario with the one-liners sort of Bond 
that you know a lot of us miss. I sort of miss the charming Bond. He's been too much of this angry uh, Craig stuff. So the reason I say that is, if you think of it in the terms of in real life, in real life, when we have our hearts broken, when bad things happen to us, we tend to have defense mechanisms. And for certain types of men, you know, when they have their heart broken, they suddenly, now they put up a wall, they put up a front, they become much more cynical, they become uh, more into like womanizing and one night stands and sort of like, I'm not going to let any woman close enough to me because I was so hurt last time and I can't ever have that, that wild card there. And I wonder if if they are going to have Madeline Swan killed off, I wonder if that's going to be like the final piece in the puzzle that forces this Bond to just shut off that part of him and just sort of become, uh, you know, more like the Connery Bond and more like the the Moore Bond, the one who kind of, they, they, they keep the women sort of at arm's length and they're better at putting up a facade and keeping intimacy at arm's length. Which could then kind of give the character a little more room to be a little more lighthearted and a little more just charming and likable again. I hope you guys understood what I'm going for there, you know, what I'm trying to describe. So, in other words, I just hope that this, if she does die, that this is that final heartbreak that pushes Bond towards just moving away from all that pain and just, you know, uh, that's it. That's, I think I've beat that point. Because, yeah, I'm always, in real life, too, I'm I'm a firm believer that all of us, all of us, if you think about it, we have that one heartbreak that changed us. That you could almost measure the way you were, you could almost measure who you are as pre that heartbreak and post that heartbreak. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say here. If they use her death to be the pivot point where his bond transforms and goes in a new direction after this point, that could be very good. And that could make the fact that we're treading on familiar territory a little easier to swallow because now it really is the final evolutionary step before our, you know, before Craig's bond and, and this version, this cinematic James Bond changes into a different kind of animal which also kind of opens the door for a new actor to take over the role you know if if this is going to be the heartbreak that changes him then it also you know moving forward the actors who you know the the, who if they do recast it kind of works if you think about it but anyway i think i've rambled on and on enough about uh about misty bend um and i kind of think that's it for the news this week um, I'm going to wrap things up with a referral, um, with, you know, I have John Leguizamo on the brain after what I spoke about earlier in the show. And it's a movie that I've, I've mentioned in my writings before, and you guys have heard me discuss on other podcasts before, but now I'm going to go ahead and make it an official recommendation because I'm not sure how many of you have actually taken the time to see it. Uh, and I'm not just going to tell you to see it. I'm going to explain to you an interesting subplot. If you are a comic book movie fan, uh, if you're a DC fan, an MCU fan, uh, there's an interesting sort of subplot to this film that will actually speak directly to you. So the movie is called Chef. It is directed by John Favreau. Um, and it stars John Favreau, and it's written by John Favreau. Um, so, how will this film relate to your fanboy desires? Well, what if I told you that Chef is a perfect poetic allegory for his experience as a filmmaker, and specifically with his filmmaking uh, time with the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Uh, as you guys know, you know, John Favreau helped launch the thing. You know, he's the one who directed Iron Man, and Iron Man is was basically the opening shot back in 2008 that br- has brought us now nearly 10 years of Marvel movies. And, you know, he really is kind of like, you know, the pioneer. Him and Robert Downey Jr. created an interesting template. Um, and then in Iron Man, <laughs> during Iron Man 2, things got a little hairy. You know, he was trying to make a sequel. And Kevin Feige and company were busy trying to do more world building. 
And they sort of forced him to sort of side sidetrack his own story that he wanted to tell to kind of make the movie more of a setup for the Avengers. And that's why that movie suffered ultimately. You know, the villain stuff got cut as as uh, uh, O'Rourke said. What the hell's his name? I don't know. Mickey Rourke. As Mickey Rourke would go on to say, a lot of the villain stuff got, you know, got, got chopped off. And some of the more interesting story beats for Tony Stark got watered down and simplified so that they could spend more time focusing on setting us up for the Avengers. And after, and after that point, Favreau left. And this is where he, in the, in the time after this, is where he made Chef. Chef was really much more a sort of return to his roots. You know, he, he really started to come into his own with smaller films. You know, he, he helped write Swingers. He wrote and directed and starred in Made, with, you know, both of which were with Vince Vaughn. And those are the things that really sort of brought him to the dance. And then, you know, he started to grow from there, right? And then eventually he sort of touched the, he touched the sun when he started making Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2. And he made that Cowboys and Aliens. You know, he really kind of like ascended and ascended to a very high level. Um, and then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, he, he, he kind of had to step back because Iron Man 2 got, you know, bad reviews and didn't do so hot. Cowboys and Aliens got bad reviews and, and bombed. And you could tell he kind of like, I, I need to get back to basics. And Chef, if you watch the film, it, it basically tells the same story. You know, he plays this chef who does really good work, eventually gains a lot of popularity in the, in the California sort of, you know, restaurant scene. And eventually he gets hired to be the, the, the executive chef at some big high-end restaurant. And then what happens? He starts to become creatively handcuffed because the guy who owns the restaurant, who's played by Dustin Hoffman, wants him to play by his rules. But meanwhile, Favreau's characters, but listen, you know, I, I didn't get to be this big by playing by your rules. I, I got to be this big by doing things my way and being creative and really sort of flexing my muscles and trying new things. So what happens, him and the studio head, or I should say the restaurant owner, finally basically come to blows, you know, not literally, but Favreau's character gets fired. He, and he has to go away from the life that he had built for himself because he had basically, you know, he'd lost his voice and he'd become very frustrated in his craft. And in the story of Chef, it involves him going and getting a food truck and sort of getting back into the smaller stuff that made him uh, a name to begin with. And in that way, Chef is John Favreau's food truck. Him as a filmmaker, Chef was his food truck. And there's all kinds of little metaphors and things that I think you guys, you know, it's, it's very interesting to see ultimately what he has to say about his Marvel experience through the writing and what he does in Chef. Chef is like a perfect little poem, perfect little allegory for what he went through as a filmmaker. And aside from all that, it's just a damn good movie. It's got really good actors in it. It's got very strong writing. It's got a lot of heart, a lot of emotion. It's got a dynamic soundtrack, by the way. My Latinos out there, they got a lot of great Latin music. Because oddly enough, even though his character is a white guy, uh, he starts a, a food truck that specializes in Cuban sandwiches. So there's lots of great Cuban music and salsa and a little bit of reggaeton. And, you know, and there's also got some funky stuff in there because at some point they're sort of touring the South and going to New Orleans and Texas. So there's some good like Southern rock and, and sort of that brassy New Orleans sound. The soundtrack is brilliant. I have it. I listen to it all the time. Um, and then he's also got a little help from his friends because Robert Downey Jr., his boy from Iron Man, pops up in a nice size cameo in, uh, in this movie. So does Scarlett Johansson, you know, his Iron Man 2 star, you know, when he introduced her as Black Widow. Um, and John Leguizamo plays, you know, one of his, his best friends and allies in the business. Uh, and he's always great and reliable in everything he does. Um, it's just, the, the movie was a great little surprise. It'll make you want to have a Cuban sandwich as soon as it's over. 
and it'll make you look at Favreau differently. I can tell you right now, I look at that man so differently ever since then. You know, I was a fan prior to Chef, but Chef made me a Favreau super fan. And the ending of the movie is also just very exhilarating because it also lines up with the trajectory that he's now on. You know, from Chef, he basically began his comeback. You know, from Chef, he did The Jungle Book, which is, you know, was this huge success. Um, and now he's going to be doing Jungle Book 2 and The Lion King. And he's sort of like back making bigger movies. But it looks like he's learned his lessons from his first round of success. And he's going to do things a little differently this time. And he's going to, you know, now he knows how to manage the relationships with the studios more. Give them what they want, but still get what he needs out of it. So, Sea Chef, that is this week's referral. Uh, for the longest time, it was on Netflix. I hope it still is. Uh, I'd love to know what you guys think of that movie. Um, and like I said, I know I've mentioned the film before. But this is the first time I'm actually outright saying... You're, you got to go see this thing. And I'm not going to mention it again. So for those of you who are tired of hearing me wax poetic about Chef, I'm retiring that now. Uh, I'll save future comments about the film to Twitter if you guys want to engage me and discuss it a little bit. By the way, uh, you know, if uh, just in case you're new to the show, my username is at I underscore am underscore MFR. And uh, as my regulars can attest to, I'm always more than happy to engage you guys. Um, I always take the time to answer questions or, or respond to any comments or concerns that you guys will have there on the social media. There's also the MFR L Fanboy Facebook page. Um, I also interface with people there who send me messages and leave comments on my post there. Um, and yeah, you know, if you enjoyed this, uh, please, you know, like, subscribe, rate, and review. Go on iTunes, give me five stars, scribble a couple of words about what you think of the show. Uh, it really mean a lot to me. It really kind of helps the the algorithms. It helps more people find me. And uh, you know, I, I got a lot I want to share with you. So help me to expand my uh, presence here so that I may share it with as many of you as I can. All right, but uh, all right, thanks for, for, for spending this last hour or so with me. I will be back next week. Until then, adios. <laughs>